Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today on the program, we begin to learn about the Jewish roots of Christianity from Larry Stamm and ministry president Dr. Kenneth Hill will have some thoughts for us from God's Word. Our teacher today, Larry Stamm, is a featured speaker at our upcoming Prophecy Conference in Columbus, Ohio. Larry Stamm will be taking a deep dive into the Jewish roots of Christianity. So be sure to check out Larry Stamm's speaking sessions when you attend the conference in October. The Prophecy Conference is October 28th through the 30th in Columbus, Ohio. Registration is open right now. Make sure you reserve your spot for this important conference. Call 1-800-652-1144 or visit the conference page of our website, swrc.com. Here is Larry Stamm. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here. So glad you are joining us as we continue our study on the Jewish roots of Christianity. In this study, we are going to begin unpacking the gospel message itself, the most important thing. And as we make connections between the Old Testament and New Testament, I want to remind us that we started with a pithy catchphrase that I want us to repeat as we begin our time unpacking the gospel message, and it's this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. As we do this biblical survey of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, we are connecting the dots between the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, otherwise known to us as Christians, as the New Testament. Today, we're going to unpack the gospel message specifically, and we begin with the end in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words which provide us the foundation of the gospel message. He wrote, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The first question I want to ask, and by the way, if you have a Bible handy, please get it. We are going to open up the Word of God, and the first place you can turn is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. But as we unpack these two verses from 1 Corinthians 15, I'll repeat them, and then I want to ask a question. This is the foundation of the gospel message. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The question is this, of what Scriptures was the Apostle Paul referring? If you said the Old Testament, you are correct. In the first century, when Paul was penning these words to the church in Corinth, the only Bible they had was the Jewish Scriptures, otherwise known to us as the Old Testament. The three main components of the gospel message I want us to unpack in this teaching are these. Substitutionary atonement, he died for our sins. Resurrection, he rose again the third day. And then, according to the Scriptures, Those are the three main components of the gospel found in this passage, substitutionary atonement, resurrection, and the scriptures. So we should be able to find, therefore, 
this concept of substitutionary atonement and resurrection in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what we're going to do in just a moment. But first, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 24. And I want to read several verses from Luke 24, beginning in verse 21 to verse 27. And I want you to see here the glorified Jesus. This is post-resurrection. And he's making an appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other disciple. And if you remember the story as we set it up, there on the road, Jesus shows up and joins them. His identity is veiled in some way, shape, or form. They don't know who he is. And they strike up a conversation. And Jesus says to them in verse 17 of Luke 24, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And I'm reading now in Luke 24, verse 18. I want to provide some context for this teaching point. Luke 24, 18. And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And Jesus says unto them, What things? Ironically, Jesus is the only one in Jerusalem who knows what is actually going on. Verse 19, he says to them, What things are you speaking about? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this... Today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. In verse 23, we continue in Luke 24. And when they had found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found that even so, as the women had said, but him they saw not. Now Jesus will rebuke them. And he says in verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ or Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27 is the key verse in this entire passage as we begin unpacking the gospel in the Old Testament. In verse 27 of Luke 24, Jesus says to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus these words, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you get that? Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus says to them in witnessing to them, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, we have to ask the question of what scriptures is Jesus referring? The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So there's a background. We see Jesus witnessing from the Hebrew scriptures themselves. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have fallen. They have rebelled against God. They have partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they attempt to cover their sin and their shame in one way, 
that way is not acceptable to God. And then we find later in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord himself providing them an acceptable covering for sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the word of God says in Genesis 3, 7, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons or girding coverings. So here we see Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin and shame. Was it an acceptable covering for their sin? It actually happened literally as the scripture states, but there's also a powerful symbol found here. Their attempt to cover their sin and shame was unacceptable in God's eyes. And notice what the Lord does for them later in Genesis chapter 3. We're reading now in verse 21 of Genesis 3. The word of God says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So God makes tunics of skins and clothed them. And we have to ask of the text of where did the skins come from? Friends, these are the skins of animals, innocent animals whose blood was shed. So Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin and shame, not acceptable in God's eyes. God had to provide Jehovah Jireh. Sometimes we sing that song around the campfire, Jehovah Jireh, my God shall provide all my needs. And we see a powerful difference between the attempt of man to deal with his sin versus the provision of God in appropriately dealing with that sin. For us as witnesses of Jesus, there's a powerful lesson for us as we think about evangelism and the gospel message itself. In Genesis 3-7, we find them covering their sin and shame with aprons or fig leaves. It was not acceptable to God. In fact, there are only two kinds of religion in the world today. There is the religion of man and there is the religion of God. There is the religion of man that is based upon human accomplishment, achievement, and there is the religion of the Bible that teaches that he did it all on the cross, that the blood of Christ not only covers our sin, but cleanses us from all sin. All world religions teach that we get to heaven, paradise, nirvana based upon this do, whereas biblical faith is predicated solely upon this reality. This happened. Jesus paid our sin debt in full at the cross. That's why he said while hanging on a Roman cross, it is finished. And so we see here at the beginning of the Bible itself in Genesis chapter 3, man's attempts to deal with his sin and shame not acceptable to God. The Lord must provide, and he did provide a covering for Adam and Eve. In fact, Old Testament covering for sin was temporary. And we find in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, these words, in the power of the blood and the altar of sacrifice that was the means of atoning for sin in the Hebrew scriptures. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So the life is in the blood, and it's through the shedding of blood and the faith in God's provision that was the means of forgiveness found in the Hebrew scriptures. 
We also connect the dots with the New Testament book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where the Word of God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Now I want us to understand that there are three things that were accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice that I want you to understand. Number one, we see identification. Number two, we see substitution. Number three, we see the exchange of life. Three things accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice. Number one, identification. The offer and the offering are identified as one. That's why the priest would take the lamb, the bull, the goat, the animal to be sacrificed and literally place his hand on the animal. Then we have substitution. The offering is on behalf of the offerer. So we see the offering is on behalf of the offerer. So the one offering the sacrifice, the one who is guilty, is not actually the one who experiences that death, that shedding of blood. And that points to the third thing accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice was the exchange of life in that the offering dies, the offerer lives. It's a powerful picture of what we would find ultimately in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our great high priest. So those three things accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice, identification, substitution, and the exchange of life, all are types or foreshadowings of the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of mankind for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of abundant and eternal life. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices compared to Messiah's sacrifice, you can do a reading and a study of the book of Exodus, but I'll just lay down some basic principles for the relationship between Old Testament sacrifices compared to the sacrifice of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord. Old Testament sacrifices were temporary. They were coverings for sin. That's why the Israelites had to shed blood all the time. Millions and millions of gallons of blood of the bulls, lambs, and goats were sacrificed because, again, those sacrifices covered for sin. The sacrifice of Christ cleanses us from all sin, and his one-time atoning sacrifice cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future, for those who put our trust in him. And we also find Old Testament promises regarding sacrifice were obsolete. We find in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about better sacrifices and a better covenant, the new covenant, which we're going to talk about as well. Old Testament sacrifices were simply a shadow of the reality of the substance who is Christ himself in the new covenant scriptures. And then we find that the Old Testament priesthood was sinful human beings who had to be cleansed and be forgiven of their own sins. So the priesthood, though they were appointed by God for this special service, they still were simply human beings. We, in the new covenant, with Jesus being our great high priest, his priesthood is perfect because our great high priest, Jesus, is perfect. He is sinless. We can talk about the fact of daily sacrifices which were offered in the Old Testament, and we said that Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time-for-all atoning sacrifice. 
The Old Testament sacrificial system was based upon animal sacrifices. We see in the New Covenant scriptures simply the sacrifice of God's Son was sufficient. In other words, it was the propitiation for our sin. It satisfied God's demand, judgment, and wrath upon sin that all of us deserve But those of us who know Christ and who have put our trust in Christ don't experience because of the grace and mercy of our living God. And then Old Testament sacrifices, as I mentioned, were ongoing. The sacrifice of Christ is a one-time-for-all atoning sacrifice. Therefore, sacrifices in the new covenant economy, which we as the church of God are living in, are no longer needed. So I commend you to a further study of the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews that will compare and contrast Old Testament sacrifices compared to the sacrifice of Messiah. Now, we talked about the sacrificial system. We talk about substitutionary atonement. Now I want to briefly talk about resurrection. And resurrection is found in many places in the Hebrew Scriptures, In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Word of God says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. David wrote in Psalm 16:10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And finally, we find Job in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 19. Job wrote these words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. So here are just a few scriptures of resurrection in the Old Testament. I would commend you if you have a pencil or paper, you want to write down several others. You could write down Hosea 6.2. You could write down Isaiah 26.19, Ezekiel 37.14, Psalm 49 verse 15, and Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 as we continue to study the gospel in the Old Testament. So until next time, friends, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. Thank you, Larry. Larry Stan will be debuting a brand new book during the Prophecy Conference in Columbus, Ohio. So be sure and stay tuned for all the details. Ministry President Dr. Kenneth Hill is here to share some needed encouragement from God's Word. Everybody seems to have COVID on their mind. This infection, which is a virus, has taken over the thought processes of the people of the world for the last almost two years now. And with this virus change that's been taking place, and now we've got mutations and all that's going with it, We have folks that are very, very concerned, and I know that. That's not what I'm trying to stoke here. I'm not trying to make you more concerned or get you upset. 
What I'm wanting to do is to assure you that Jesus Christ is in control. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. It's always been true, and it's true in this time in which we live with all of the things that are going on and causing trouble. I got a letter from a friend of mine who works in missions in the Indian subcontinent. I guess we don't pay enough attention to the teeming masses of the land of India. But the COVID pandemic has brought chaos to India, just as it has to other nations. India, of course, is ill-equipped and has 1.2 or 3 billion people. And so it's a terrible time. So he was writing to me to let me know how to pray. And he said, in our personal experience, it's much worse than it is here in the United States, especially within the remote rural areas where 70% of the population of India lives. A new international study shows that India's excess deaths during the pandemic could be as high as 4.9 million. That means 4.9 million people have died more than have been counted. And so it's providing further evidence that millions more may have died from the coronavirus than what the government of India is allowing to be said. The Indian government's active COVID obfuscation suppresses bad news to buoy its faltering image and the current government party's domestic standings. All Indian journalists are to self-censor their reporting on the pandemic and what they say on social media for fear of inciting the ire of the Indian government. Many were understandably incensed when the Indian central government made Twitter and Facebook forcibly remove anything critical of the government's COVID measures. Does it sound like something that's going on here in the United States as well? Well, India seems now to be the center or the epicenter, if you prefer, of global COVID with this new strain of the virus. It seems that India accounts for 40% of global infections. New Delhi is the center, the eye of the storm, as he would say. All of this came through what they call a mega-COVID super spreader event called the Kumela Festival. It's a gloomy picture of the utter lostness of humanity groping in the dark for hope. It's the largest human gathering in one place on Earth with an attendance of over 3 million people, and they were giving themselves to all sorts of evil. And so it was true that in India, where my friend is engaged, the epicenter of COVID has sprung forth. And he says this, you need to know that God is still in charge. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I've set the stage, and I know it sounded bad. And it is. Evil is evil. Bad is bad. We can't make bad good, and we certainly should not make good bad. But we can trust in our Savior. Here we have, in Matthew chapter 16, the passage of Scripture that 
has come to my heart today to share with you. It says that, verse 13, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice the question was, Who do men say that I am? And then the question became, Who do you say that I am? And that's what's being asked of us today as we approach Jesus Christ himself. He would ask us, whom do you say that I am? And Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was from Simon Peter. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the rock? The rock is the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because the church is going to be built upon this foundation, what will also happen is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will march triumphantly into the future and into eternity, defeating the hosts of hell, defeating the evil one, defeating those that would come against the church and come against the truth and come against the lovely one himself, our Savior, we will see the church be triumphant in all things. So this grimness that's being seen in India and around the world and here in the United States with all of the sickness, all of the illness, all of the death and deprivation, this brings us to the truth of the light and hope that is in Jesus Christ alone, not in the world, not in the things of the world, or the people of the world. No, it is in Christ Jesus alone that we have our hope and we have our joy and we have the blessings of God Almighty upon us. And indeed, Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when you start thinking those negative thoughts, you start thinking how bad things are and how bad they're getting, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Look up. Jesus Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. Are you ready, my friend? In our resource center today, we want to highlight two books by Larry Stamm, Serving in His Court and Into the Gale. Before entering full-time ministry, Larry Stamm spent years coaching tennis. 
In serving in his court, he draws on those years of professional coaching to teach believers everywhere how to share the good news. Into the Gale is taking lessons from the first century church as found in the book of Acts. Larry Stam shows how the 21st century Christian can still take a stand for Christ. Each of these books are available today for a gift of $15, or you can get both Serving in His Court and Into the Gale for a gift of $25 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144 or online swrc.com. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.